Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, looking at Ireland's lighthouses from the air, I'm in the Marine Biology Department in Trinity College, and more on those orca attacks on yachts off the coast of Portugal. So for tonight's programme, I've come to the Marine Biology Department at Trinity College Dublin and I'm here with Nick Payne, who's Assistant Professor of Marine Biology here in the department. Nick, in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking on the programme about these orca attacks on boats, on yachts, on yacht rudders going down off the coast of Portugal. You had a look at that for me. I did indeed, Fergal, yeah. I mean, um, it's it's not really something that I look at much myself, certainly for work, but... I've heard about this phenomenon, you know, coming coming to this part of the world a few years ago. Uh, it seems like, at least for some years, there's been this phenomenon, very, I think, really strange, weird phenomenon, where orcas seem to be, for some reason, uh, interested in particular parts of some boats and, yeah, doing some <laughs> reasonably troublesome uh, damage to them. It seems like... Um, it's happening maybe, I don't know whether we could say that it's happening more often at the moment um, versus whether it's being reported more because there's more people out in the water and perhaps people are documenting it on social media or you mentioned actually that there was this recently new Facebook page that's been set up yeah. dedicated or- to... Right, Orca opinions. Attack Reporting is called. <laughs> right, yeah, with the name does what it says on the tin. Right, so um, it certainly is an, an interesting phenomenon that seems to be happening a lot in Europe, yeah. But they don't seem to be interested in sinking the boat. It's just seem they're grabbing the tiller's and pushing it along. It, is it a game or is it a, a way of adults training uh, younger ones? Or right, I've heard a few different hypotheses. Right, and that's what oh, that's all they are at this point. I think people are are guessing about what it might be. I, I, it sort of stumps me a little bit, to be honest. Orcas are so because they're a marine mammal. They're very intelligent. They're very social. They have very advanced behaviours. It seems from looking at this website that you pointed me to, this Facebook group, it does look like it may be predominantly younger orcas. And I've even heard a suggestion that males in particular. So one of my colleagues actually proposed that there may even be some sort of hormonal element to it, where for some reason the, these young fellows are getting feeling a certain way, feeling a little bit emotional, and for some reason there's there's an interest in attacking a, a, a rudder of a, of a yacht. I haven't heard a single incident of a human being attacked. It, for that reason, it makes me think that they're, they're not doing it for a reason that perhaps has anything to do with the people on the boat. It seems like it, like they're certainly not trying to um, attack them or injure them. They, orcas very regularly in, um, are encountered by humans like in the natural environment throughout Europe. So if they had even a slight inclination to injure a human, it would probably happen. But we're not seeing that. It's something about the boat and the rudder. So what's going on, right? Okay, we live in Narrow, but we've come now to the marine biology department here in Trinity. Tell me about the department. So this this is the department or the discipline of zoology. So it's uh, a... a department that has, we have roughly, I think, 10 academic staff here at the moment. Myself and one or two other colleagues work primarily on marine animals. So there's about 
about two or three of us that we consider to be mostly marine biologists. The department more generally has people working on all types of ecology, biodiversity, um, ecosystem services, um, a real range of things. But it's a, it's a really dynamic, exciting place to work. And the marine biology side of things, I mean, I've, I've been in Ireland for... Uh, well, I've been here for about five years. I come from Australia. You might, might pick that up from my accent. And where I grew up, you know, sharks was my thing. So when I grew up as a kid in South Australia, we have loads of white sharks, loads of, um, you know, recently famous animals like that. And so I grew up really being interested in those kind of animals and studying them. And when I came to Ireland, I very quickly realised this is the place to be. Like... I think there's a conception, a misconception among a lot of people in Ireland, certainly, that studying marine biology, marine animals, sharks, marine mammals um, is more for places like California, Australia, where I'm from, um, or, you know, or perhaps Canada. But I must say, like, the, the scope for seeing, working with, interacting with amazing marine animals in Ireland is is right up there with the best places in the world. I take this camera out with this big, fancy, expensive housing quite often to try to record the amazing animals that we see in Ireland so that we can show people, whether it's um, sending it to people like you, Fergal, um, or showing you know our students here at Trinity the amazing life that we have out in the seas. You know, what, really are you, what are you talking What are you seeing? I'm a sh so I'm most interested in sharks. That's my passion. We I would say Ireland is a global hotspot for shark species in general. We have basking sharks, which are unbelievable. I mean, th these animals are, so they're the second largest shark species in the world. These animals are as long and as heavy as a Dublin bus, right? So this is, this is a serious animal. We see probably, there was a day last, actually this year, where my team was out off of Cork, very close to, um, it was actually your part of the world, Baltimore and uh, Court McSharry, within about two, two or three miles from shore, we saw, I think, 200 of these animals at the surface, right? So th this, is, this is probably the global hotspot for that species in the world. So they're distributed all around the world. We even get them in Australia. But Ireland is the number one place at the moment for this animal. And that's just an example. We have, I mean, my God, like incredible, incredible species. You want to talk about marine mammals, you know? Um, we see orcas here, huge fin whales. We get blue blue whales off the coast. Um, there's an awful lot going on in this space in Ireland, yeah. Okay, you've got your wetsuit, you've got all that, but we're actually going to take a walk around the department. You're going to show me around sounds what good. you do here. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You've got your own natural history museum <laughs> here, here, really, another dead zoo. Another dead zoo. Yeah, this is incredible. I mean, like, um, we, prior to COVID, we used to, it's so amazing, this collection that we have here, that um, prior to COVID, we used to open it to the general public. So from the summer months, I think from June through to August or something like that, we'd allow members of the public to come in and see this because it is some collection. I mean, we have amazing prehistoric um, fish, mammals. We have, um, there's a rhinoceros over here, um, incredible deer. We have an elephant, we have um, sea turtles. Turtles, yeah. yeah. They're marine iguanas. Yes, a marine iguana. There's actually a few animals from my part of the world as well, lots of marsupials, and um, there's even a Tasmanian tiger, a thylacine just over there. I don't know if you can 
see yeah, that Fergal, but yeah. and it is some collection. So we use it primarily for teaching, actually. So this is the zoology department, and we every week we bring our students in here to look at their insane, incredible diversity of life, the form and function that that's um, on display out there, and it's a really valuable facility. You, you've got some things here. Some of us might be familiar with. They look like yeah. there's a pike, some yep. large trout, yep. stuffed and mounted. They look like they came out of some fishing lodge in the west of Ireland. They yeah, probably yeah. did. <laughs> they probably did. Like, so we do, most of this stuff does get donated. So e even today, we have people coming in that have a specimen that they've, they've had for a long time in their family, perhaps, and they want to, you know, perhaps they're downsizing or their relatives have passed on, and they want to make that specimen available to, to people in general and, and to appreciate the amazing um, diversity that we have here. So we quite often get people donating stuff. It's, it's incredible. Okay, just looking around, you've got puffer fish, you've got soul from is that, that soul fish uh, or a yeah, sword yeah, fish. Sword shark, yeah. There's a lecture going on here, packed lecture next door. What, what are people <laughs> learning in, in the uh, department, in the marine biology department in particular? Mm. And what are their careers? Great. So in the zoology department, we, uh, we teach a really diverse range of content, actually. So we have one module that's specifically and exclusively about marine biology, which I teach into. But we also teach students about um, environmental, environmental impact assessment, you know, tropical ecology, how plants and animals interact, how biodiversity is increasing and decreasing, mostly decreasing. I, what I like about the, the teaching that happens here is it's a combination of historical, fundamental life, but it's also mixed in with a lot of really contemporary challenges that, that um, society faces. And I think that's why our graduates come out with really good skills, because... They're learning the basics and including things like how to analyse data properly. But in addition to that, they're learning about how to um, study and conserve environmental habitats that are important to everything that humans do. So they come out with a really transferable, good set of skills, I think. As, as we're talking, we walk along, you've got turtles. Is See, I, even I get lost turtles. in here, Fergal. I mean, this isn't, you know, the, the diversity of things we have here is amazing. You can see. Unfortunately, there is a, a lecture going on at the moment, but if you look through that window, Fergal, you can see a whale, a minky whale skeleton hanging on the ceiling. Okay. So this is our, our main lecture theatre where we literally um, teach among the specimens, you know, so we can, we can explain to students a concept and say, look to your left, there's a crocodile skeleton, you know, here's how, here's how a minky whale functions and how it filter feeds. Okay. Right, so it's a great environment. What kind of research projects are you involved in at the moment? I know you're involved in something relating to sharks in the Bahamas that you published recently. Yeah, we were really delighted with this study, actually, Fergal, that came out. So this study that was led by some colleagues in the, in the US went down to the Bahamas, and by combining remote sensing of satellites with putting cameras on tiger sharks, which is what we did, we were able to map and quantify and identify the biggest seagrass meadow in the world. Right, so this is like a this is a really significant deal. We knew that in the Bahamas, this place called the Bahamas Banks, which is this incredible, um, you know, very tropical, amazing place, very shallow, lots of light that gets to the seafloor, and we knew that there was a lot of seagrass there. But because it's the ocean, it's really hard to study. Right, so we came up with these really um, sort of innovative new methods to measure how much seagrass is in this environment. And hey, presto, it's the biggest seagrass meadow in the whole world. Now, this is, a, this is a really big deal because seagrass does so many things for us and for the planet. 
one thing it does is it takes a lot of carbon from the atmosphere and by the plant doing what it does, so photosynthesizing, it pushes that carbon into the seabed, into the sediment, and stores it there, locks it away. That's just one thing that seagrasses do. They also support biodiversity. They're amazing nurseries. You know, they, they do lots of stuff. They actually stop, um, help resist erosion, so they protect mm-hmm. islands from storms. So it's kind of really, I think, for us it's a game changer because it made us realise we have this amazing climate asset that we didn't really realise the significance of it. Now we do. There's an obvious question that you just skipped over. How do you put a camera on a tiger shark? <laughs> Great question. With difficulty, I would say with difficulty. Tiger sharks are big and toothy. So four or five metres long, you know, three or four hundred pounds, and they have big teeth and they can be potentially dangerous. So we have to use a lot of uh, experience and care, but essentially we catch the animal using pretty typical hand, like uh, angling techniques. We very carefully secure them next to our fishing vessel. And then we very quickly attach a, um, a fancy form of a GoPro, to be honest, to the fin of the animal, and then we let it go. And it swims around, records all this amazing information for us while it's happily doing its normal behaviour that it normally does. And then the tag automatically detaches from the animal, and that's when the problems, the, the difficulty starts, because we have to go and get that thing. So often, unfortunately, you can't really tell a tiger shark where to swim, it's going to go where it wants. So we often have animals that the, the tag pops off maybe eight, 80 or 90 miles away and we have to go and get that thing. So it's a real challenge, but when it works, the, the payback in terms of information that we get is remarkable. And thanks to Professor Nick Payne in Trinity College. Aerial photographer Dennis Hogan has just published his latest book called Ireland's Guiding Lights, a celebration of our lighthouses. It's a beautiful publication of photographs of the lighthouses all around our country and it gives you a glimpse of them that you might never have seen before. I was on hand in Union Hall last weekend for the launch of the book and Dennis Hogan told me all about it and how he took his photographs. Well, it's a collection of images that I took over the last year of lighthouses all over Ireland from, say, the Tusker right around to the southwest, up to the north, and back down into Dublin. Um, took a year to complete it, and um, we've got some good pictures. Now, when you say you got some good pictures, it's an understatement. It's a, a coffee table-sized book, and it's got the unique, clear, very large photographs of lighthouses. Some of them we're familiar with because they're on shore, but particularly the ones on islands. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ones in islands, you know, um, Fastnet would be one. Tusker is another one. They're the far-off ones. But lighthouses are all different. They're, they're no two lighthouses the same. Some are onshore, some are offshore. No two lighthouses even look remotely like each other. And that's what I love about them. Yeah, what attracts you to them? Because people do find them, throughout the world, find them very iconic. Because any, every country in the world has huge posters of their own lighthouses. Well, I think architecturally the structures are beautiful. I think we look at them and, and see them as kind of saviours, silent saviours as for mariners um, around the coast of Ireland. You know, they're all automatic now, but there was a time when they weren't, you know. Uh, before 1976, there were families living there. And, you know, I pass over the empty houses now and I wonder, you know, what, what it was like. For instance, the Blaskets, 
the Skelligs, or the, not the Blaskets, sorry, Skelligs, um, they had um, about a half an acre of arable land on, on Skellig, and they survived for months at a time. You know, women, children, uh, and the lighthouse keepers themselves, you know, they were resilient, hard people, you know. The other thing that fascinates me about lighthouses, they'll always be there, even in the current situation where, you know, the world is an uncertain place. We rely on all these ethereal things like GPS and, and internal navigation systems. If they go down, something happens, those lighthouses are always there for them. How do you go about taking a photograph? There are aerial photographs. Do you fly yourself? Uh, no, <laughs> that would be a, a recipe for disaster. No, I use um, three or four different uh, um, air operators around Ireland. In Cork, I use a company called Atlantic Flight Training, and they have quite a few aircraft, and one or two of them are very suitable for me. So basically, sometimes we will uh, we go flying, um, take most of the pictures in between 1,000 and 2,000 feet, and in order to get really good field of vision and to get some light, and we take the door off, and I have a harness, and, you know, I just lean So over. you're hanging out? Well, not quite, <laughs> but I'm out as far as a slipstream, but it's quite safe, and it's, you know, it's um, it's within the regulations, and we fly within the regulations. And then... Up in, if I'm going further north, I will use sky sky surveys, air surveys, in uh, Galway. Um, and if I want a helicopter, I rarely use helicopters, but I have on occasions. I'll go to Weston Airport outside of Dublin. So and and uh, you know I normally shoot. Um, I, sometimes I go up and I don't know what I'm going to take. Um, it's a different kind of photography. You're moving and the subject is staying where it is. But I have a very good camera and modern technology of cameras is amazing. And um, I might take maybe 30 or 40 or 50 shots of each. It's only when I go back that I see the picture I want if I'm lucky enough because it's a very, very kind of a fast environment up there. It's also quite cramped and things happen quickly. So, and it's also quite expensive to hire aircraft, so get your shots fairly fast, you know. Are you looking for a particular type of weather? They're all beautifully lit. Um, I, yes, I would look for a day where it's not too sunny. Um, they're, they're well lit because I would never go up on a dark day, but even on a day where there are patches of light, and I always go chasing the light, you know, and it's not too cloudy, or, or, or the cloud is at high level. Um, you'll always get good pictures, but Ireland is not the best of places to go. You know, you you get a window maybe five or six times a year. I remember trying to photograph Cape Clear on a, on a, on a, on a day where the visibility was brilliant, but I couldn't get it. But I got it last year purely by accident. I, we were going down to Kerry, and there was no haze. There was nothing in the atmosphere like, you know, the stuff that comes in from Eastern Europe, all this dust yeah. and things, nothing. And that shot of Cape Clear is crisp. And um, I took it from an angle that even <laughs> a friend of mine in Cape Clear didn't know where I was. I said, you live there. But, um, yeah, you know, you don't get many opportunities, but the light is everything. The light is everything in taking pictures. Let's talk about some of, of, of the photographs. Do you have a favourite, a favourite lighthouse? I do, and I, I'm not being tribal or, or, or about it, but Fastnet Rock has to be my favourite. It's it, I think it's Ireland's most iconic lighthouse. It's, it's the uh, tear of Ireland, Ireland's tear. Ireland's, Ireland's teardrop, yeah, um, because the this is when the 
immigrants were going to America from Cove in the 18 and 1900s, their last sight of Ireland was was the Fastnet Rock. And it's also, you know, the halfway mark in one of the world's classic ocean races, um, which is the, well, the Fastnet Race, part of Cow's Week. Um, I just think it's it's out there on a small rock. It's a bulwark, you know, and it's an amazing, it's an amazing piece of uh, engineering. I remember Jerry Butler, who wrote some of the stories for the book. He's a former lighthouse keeper, and he was on Fastnet Rock. Telling me on a reasonably calm night, but few waves, he was looking out the storm window at the very top of the um, the lighthouse, and he was looking out, and he. The moon was out and there were clouds there, but not too many, and suddenly the moon disappeared. And there was this great wall of water that came towards him, a rogue wave, and it went right over, right over the lighthouse, and the lighthouse shook. And, um, you know, it was a reasonably good night, things you don't expect, and yes, the fastening has survived, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of engineering, and it's a... It looks it looks very nice, you know. It looks it looks nice. I'm going to go through your book and pick out ones at random, particularly uh, lighthouses on islands. Now, there's mm-hmm. one here even I don't know about Straw Island Lighthouse in County Galway. It's on an island. It looks almost like it's not an island at all. It, it does. It looks like a lighthouse in the Caribbean. Because but it's on, it's almost a sand spit. It's surrounded by sand and then rocks. Yeah, it's built on a sand spit and rocks. And I got it at kind of low tide, so it, it, the water's the water's receding, and and it's fairly obvious that it is built in a sand spit. But it's it's very near Kilronan in Galway Bay, and it's a, it's a it's a lovely lighthouse. It's quite small, but it's very it's it, it's lovely. It looks it, it's quite unusual. Only for your photographs, I would never have known about it. Others then, like the Metal Man in County Sligo. There's another one of those down off Hookhead. There's another one of those in Tremor, yeah? Um, basically, it's it's a beacon, but the one in... Um, the Metal Man in Sligo, they've, in the last 20 years, they added a small flashing light to it. Um, but it's basically a beacon, and it's a, it's a bronze, a cast bronze... Of of a, a midshipman in the Royal Navy and beautiful, he has a beautiful blue tunic and white trousers. The same, the same man who cast that figure also cast the one on the metal man in Tremor. Uh, their beacons to point. It it actually was put up there after in in the one in Tremor was put up there after a boat went down just maybe half a mile offshore, and with the loss of two hundred and twenty three people. And the the ministry, the, the ministry of the marine at the time, who were um, we were being ruled by the UK by England, uh, decided to put up a beacon there. And and the man is actually pointing at the danger below. So when they didn't have lighthouses, they had beacons. You know why would they pick a midshipman like that? I have absolutely no idea. But he he's quite visible because his colours are striking. So he would be quite visible, say, to the helmsman of a boat, uh, maybe half a mile away, and it's on a very high tower as well. Some of them are very easy to visit, like places like Yol, they're just right there on the roadside. Uh, others like St John's Point and County Down, also right there on the roadside. Any ones that you would think, besides Hook Head, which are familiar with, that you think are well worth a visit? I love the lighthouse in Clare Island. 
Some of them you can visit, like in Ishterot. You, you couldn't get there, Skelligs, you can't. Um, I, I, I like the lighthouse in Clare, in Clare Island. It's uh, very nice. You can actually stay there. They have this initiative, the 12, uh, the Great Legends of Ireland, there are 12 of them, where you can actually stay there. But Clare Island is the only one you can actually be fed in as well. So it's, uh, it's very nice. I'd also recommend uh, that you have a look at St. John's Point uh, in Northern Ireland. The book is called Ireland's Guiding Lights. Dennis Horgan, where can we get it? Well, you can get it in most of the, the major uh, bookshops, uh, uh, retail high street shops. It's also available on my website, which is dennishorgan.ie. The publisher is Red Stripe Press, and it's in hardback, and it's twenty four ninety nine. Thanks to Dennis Horgan, and congratulations on his book. And at twenty four ninety nine, it makes a perfect stocking filler. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.